been in a sermon series through the book of Revelation, and I've said, which didn't start with me, I'm just repeating what others have said, that if you want to understand the 66th book of the Bible, the last book of the Bible, you really need to have something of a grasp of the first 65. And what you find is that as you understand the first 65 books of the Bible, it helps you to understand the last one a little bit better. And as you understand the last one, it helps you to go back and see things in those first 65 that you missed. One of the Psalms, we've talked about Psalms in Isaiah and Daniel quite a bit already in Revelation uh, 1 and 2 and 3. But Psalm 2, Psalm 2 is a Psalm that is quoted or alluded to, referenced many times in the New Testament. In fact, one commentator said that 80% of Psalm 2 is found in the New Testament. And it's a key Psalm that relates to the book of Revelation as well. So what I want to do this week is we're going to take one break, one week break. Well, I was sick last week, so I guess it's two weeks. But I intended to just take one week, a one-week break from Revelation, kind of like a whale coming up from, for air, right? We're going, to, we're going to breach. We're going to come up out of Revelation for one week. We're going to get our breath, look at Psalm 2, and then we'll be back, Lord willing, in Revelation uh, next week. There's a natural break where we're at in Revelation. We finished chapter 3. We're about to go into chapter 4. There's a natural break there. So I really want you to understand Psalm 2, how it relates to the book of Revelation, and how Psalm 2 helps you understand the book of Revelation, how Revelation helps you understand Psalm 2. It's amazing to me that God has all of these uh, different men that he has inspired, his work through his spirit has moved through over hundreds and hundreds of years and thousands of years, and they have one consistent theme, one consistent message. And it's amazing that you could take a book like Psalm 2, or, or the book of Psalms as a whole, and you can take the book of Revelation and see how they go together over and over again. It speaks to one God who is reigning over all of his creation, bringing it to his predetermined end. I've titled today's sermon, The Nation's Rage and the King Triumphs. The Nation's Rage and the King Triumphs. There's a picture that we'll see right at the beginning of Psalm 2, and it reminds me of a video that we saw on America's Funniest Home Videos. My family and I like to watch that. My kids get a kick out of it. And there was a toddler that had gotten upset with his mom about something. I don't even remember what it was. But he decided that she had offended him so greatly enough that he was going to run away. A little two-year-old boy. And he was packing his bags. And he was trying to find some animal crackers and his blanket. And he was determined that she had done him so wrong, he was going to be able to just take out on his own and survive. And, of course, it was hilarious because he didn't even know how to get the safety lock off the front door, right? And so, I mean, it's complete foolishness, but you're just watching him, and he's going through this. And I think that if we'll be honest with ourselves enough to really stop and reflect that many times we'll find ourselves in that place where we are just raging against God, and He is a good and loving and a kind God, and He's looking us in, in our foolishness, and he's, still, he's just smiling, going, I love you still. And the Psalm 2 that we're going to look at actually talks about the nations themselves of the earth raging against God, kicking and screaming against God. God's perspective on that and 
how we're to live in light of that. I think you'll find there's a lot of encouragement in this psalm today. So let's look at Psalm 2. Again, I've titled the sermon, The Nations Rage and the King Triumphs. Psalm 2, beginning in verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? So the first thing that we see, the points are a little different this morning. Just number one, I want us to look at a question asked. A question asked. We're going to divide this psalm up into three sections. So it begins with a question. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing, a worthless thing, something that's it's not going to go well? The kings of the earth, what is it? Well, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Let's stop there for just a minute. So, the psalmist is asking the questions, why do the nations rage? Why are they kicking and screaming like an angry child against who? Against the Lord. That's the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's Yahweh. Against Yahweh, the faithful, promise-keeping God. Why are the nations kicking and screaming against him, plotting against him, and against his anointed? Another translation of that would be Messiah. This is an Old Testament reference pointing to Jesus, who's the fulfillment of this. And so the question is, why are the nations raging and kicking against God and His chosen one, His Messiah, His anointed one that He has given us? And then in verse 3 again, it says, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. The nations are raging and the content of their message is, we don't want God to rule over us. We want to cast His yoke Yahweh and his Messiah's yoke off of us. We want to break their bonds in pieces. We do not want God to rule over us. And, and the psalmist is saying, why are the nations doing this? Why are they raging against God? Again, it's like a, a toddler throwing a fit because, I mean, if you think about it, a little two-year-old kicking and screaming, thinking that they're going to get their way if they just continue to kick and scream. Now, a full-grown adult, what do they have to do if they want that little fit to stop? They just reach down and overpower that toddler. Pick them up. That's, that's enough. You're done. And really, we must understand that God is not just a little bit better than us. God's not just a little bit stronger than us. God's not a little taller than us or a little more powerful than us. God is completely other than us. He is the one that said, let there be light, and the sun, the moon, and the stars came into being. He is the faithful God who dwells beyond time in eternity. He is so far beyond our ability to fully grasp what we know of God is what he has revealed through his word, and he's put it in such a way that it wouldn't just completely explode our brain trying to receive the information. And so it's foolish to rage against this God. It is foolish to kick and scream against this God. It is foolish to say, I want to throw his reign off of my life. But that's what the nations do. Why do they kick and scream? Well, because the heart of it is, is that the heart of sin, the heart of this matter of kicking and screaming against God, which is sin, is rebellion. And apart from being forgiven of our sins, apart from Jesus Christ, apart from being transformed the sinful nature that we have at its core, the heart of sin is rebellion. 
And so as man is kicking and screaming against his creator, he's living out. He is enacting. It is our sinful nature that we don't want to be ruled. We don't want to submit. We don't want anyone to tell us what to do. And it's always been that way. And it will be that way until Jesus returns. But there's hope for us today. I'll get to that in just a minute. I want you to understand these nations raging against Jesus, these nations raging against God in Psalm 2, this is not a new thing. I mean, go back to the beginning of time. I mean, even the Tower of Babel, they were creating this great monument to themselves, and they didn't want God to rule over them. They wanted to be their own masters, so God scatters the people. The people in Noah's day had rejected God to the extent that they became so wicked that God destroyed the whole earth through a flood. You can go through story after story after story throughout the Bible. The book of Judges, I would tell my youth group, I'd call that the book of epic fails. Because Judges is just one failure after failure after another of God's people basically saying, we don't want you to rule over us, we want to make our own way. And they would suffer the consequences of their own way. They would suffer the consequences of their rebellion. So then they would turn back to God when the pressure was on them. And then when God took the pressure off, what would they do? Oh, we decided we don't want your rule anyways. And there's just this cycle over and over again of casting off, seeking to cast off the rule of God. And then understanding, oops, when we don't have God ruling over us, all these things happen. So I guess we need to return to God. But then they return to God and they go, oh, we don't want him to rule over us. It's really a pattern of insanity. And guess what? We're no different than that. That same sinful, fallen nature, that same insane thinking is in every one of us, apart from the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Look at, I mean, even Jesus' day. Think about that. God, people say, well, I just want evidence God is real. God stepped down from earth, took on the flesh of man, walked among people, told blind eyes to be opened, and they were told the dead to be raised, and they were. Took some loaves of bread and some fish and fed thousands of people, and people saw this and they were eyewitnesses to it. The Pharisees saw it. The Pharisees knew that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And what was their response in the Gospel of John? We need to figure out how to kill Jesus. Do you realize how insane that is? This guy just raised someone from the dead. Let's figure out how to kill him. That is crazy thinking. One of the craziest places in all of the Gospels to me is in the Gospel of John when the guards come to arrest Jesus. And Jesus says, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. And you know what it says in the Gospel of John right there? That they all fell down before him. When Jesus said, I am he, the force of his words and the power of his presence literally knocked the guards on the ground that came to arrest him. And you know what they still did? They got up and arrested him. Now, if I come to say, hey, I'm here to arrest you, and you say, okay, and I fall on the ground, I'm running the other direction, right? But if we'll stop and we'll be honest about ourselves and we'll put ourselves in some of these stories, we realize that the same insanity of looking to God, of seeing his power, of knowing that he's at work, of knowing that he's good, and then we still go, but I don't want it. It still lives inside of each of us. 
And the nations rage, and they have raged, and they will continue to rage against God and against his Messiah till the end of time until God puts an end to it. Look at Revelation 19 for just a minute. Revelation 19. So again, you know, we're living in a world that is against God. We live in a world right now that is raging against God. We live in a world that does not want the authority of God in its life. But guess what? That's not new. (laughs) It's just being done in different ways. And it's going to continue to happen until Jesus returns. So we have to figure out what to do about that. We'll, We'll talk more about that in a minute. But in Revelation 19, Revelation 19, look at verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. Now this is at the end. This is at the end of all things. This is after the tribulation, after God has given people a chance to repent. This is after all the signs and the wonders, and people are still resisting God. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies, in other words, the nations, gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Now, again, this is the insanity of it, is that they've already seen all of the signs and the wonders and the workings of God through the tribulation, but they continue to rebel against him. They continue to fight against him. And they're gathering together to make war against him. Verse 20, then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in the presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his message. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. That's a pretty intense passage, right? But the nations have raged against the Lord and against his Messiah. The nations will continue to rage against the Lord and against his Messiah. And you know when it will end? It will end when God says, It's time for it to be done. And like a parent picking up a screaming and kicking child, there's going to be a day when the creator returns to his creation and he says, enough, it's done. But until then, the nations will continue to rage. So what do we do now? Where does that leave us? Because it doesn't seem very hopeful just with that kind of message, right? People are kicking and screaming against God and I do it too at times, you know, dismissed. No, that's not where we're leaving it at, right? Here's the hope. We begin to see it in Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, there is a prophecy about a new covenant that God would make with his people. You see, the old covenant was the covenant of the law that was given on Mount Sinai. It was a list of commands. If you wanted to see what God required of you, you could read them and go, that's what I'm supposed to do. It was right there. But they failed in keeping it over and over and over again. They failed. They could not keep God's standard. It it wasn't an issue of was God's standard clear or not. It was right there, literally inscribed in stone. The issue was was, was the people wouldn't keep it. They kept throwing off God's rule from their life. They kept going their own way. And so in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah is the weeping prophet because Jeremiah was around in a time where God's people were suffering for their sin. They were being persecuted and God was allowing them to be carried captive, being taken away from their land. 
And in the midst of God's judgment for their sin, God gave them hope. And in Jeremiah 31, it's the New Covenant passage. Towards the end of chapter 31, God says, I'm going to make a new deal with you in the days to come. Not like the covenant of old, but this new covenant is one where I'm going to write my law on your minds and I'm going to put it in your heart. And God was telling his people, the old covenant was outside regulations that you tried to keep. The new one, I'm going to do a work where I'm going to change you from within. And my friends, that is our hope. Our hope is that we serve a God who is not far, but he is near. We serve a God who sees us in our weakness and our failings and doesn't look at us and say, well, just try harder tomorrow. Our hope is that we have a God who in Jesus Christ, who has left heaven, who has come to this world, who has drawn near having died in the cross on my, in my place for my sins, having risen from the grave, that as I believe in Jesus, he actually invades my life. His spirit comes to indwell me, and God changes my heart to where the things that I once wanted to do, I don't want to do anymore. God changes my desires. God makes me a new creation. If you've ever had a friend or a child or a parent or someone that you really cared about that was on a wrong track and you realized, I can't change their heart, and you were just so frustrated because you saw that they were going on the wrong path and you felt powerless to change that, then you understand the power and how joyful it is and the hope it is that there is a God who can actually change our hearts. He can look at us in all of our rebellion and our sin and our wandering and our casting off of his rule from our life. And he can go, hey, let's do something about it. And he can actually come into our hearts and clean house and change us. Man, that's power. The power to change a heart. And so the question asked in the psalm is, why do the nations rage? A a short answer would be, because the essence of sin is rebellion. A heart that's been unchanged by Jesus Christ will kick and scream against God. That's its default setting. That's where that heart resides, is to kick and scream against God. But through Jesus Christ, we can be changed. But let's continue on with Psalm 2, and the next part of this psalm, verses 4 through 9, is a heavenly perspective. A heavenly perspective, that's number two. And that's what we need, right? You know what? If you, wanna, you want me to tell you how you can have an awful day today? Go home and watch the news nonstop for about two hours. I mean, I'll be glad to ruin your day. Just go do that. I've told you how to ruin your day. You can do it right there. What are you focused on in this life? What are you allowing your mind to dwell on? The Bible has already told us, God's Word has told us, set your mind on things above. And so there are things that are going to happen in this world that you are not going to have the power to change. Now, am I telling you to do nothing about it? No. I'm not telling you to go to your house and close your eyes and be like, if I just ignore it, it'll go away. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that there are things that are going on in this world that are because we live in a sinful, fallen world, and you're not going to be able to change it. But you can change your perspective, and you can be God's agent in the midst of it. And I think that's what's going on in verse 4. We get a heavenly perspective. Verse 4, it says, He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. 
The nations are raging. God sees it and he laughs. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. God's saying, okay, you're going to kick and scream, but that doesn't change what I'm doing. I'm still doing what I'm going to do, and I've established my king. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son. This is the Messiah. This is the king speaking. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I'll give you the nations for your inheritance. The nations that were kicking and screaming, God is going to give it to the Messiah as his inheritance. And the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Just like a, a potted plant that if you drop and it just crumbles into pieces and it shatters. He's saying these nations that are raging against you, God is saying to the Messiah, I'm going to crush them and I'm going to give them to you as your inheritance. I'm going to flip it around on them. And the very ones that kick and scream will be a treasured possession. Ask of me and I'll give you the nations for your inheritance. What we find in this heavenly perspective is a basically righteous God who is ruling over his creation. And even though the nations rage, it doesn't change what he's going to do. He's saying the nations rage, but God laughs. And he says, well, you can kick and scream all you want, but I've already set my king up to rule and he's going to rule. And in fact, you that kick and scream against him, you'll be his inheritance. And so God's going to do what he's going to do. But here, here comes the question for us. Will we learn the lesson of the sovereignty of God and move from kicking and screaming to trusting the purposes of God? You see, a child that kicks and screams is not only making it miserable for themselves and everyone around them. I mean, that's kind of the family like, well, can we get another table? You know, can we move? I don't like being around that. Don't need that. And when that's going on, it just creates a stir for everybody. But when a child learns, my mom or my dad or whoever's raising them, this person loves me. This person has my best interest in mind. It is good for me to obey this person. When I obey this person, it goes well for me. You see, when we grasp that, and we understand that not only is there a righteous God, but he loves me, and his commands toward me are good, when we go, okay, <laughs> I don't have to kick and scream against God. It's actually in my best interest to embrace obedience to God then life begins to go a whole lot better. And so what we find in this psalm is there's a question asked, why are the nations raging? Well, because there's a sinful nature in all of us. But we also see a heavenly perspective. There is a righteous God who's going to do what he's going to do, and you have a choice whether you get in on that or you just kick and scream against it. But whatever you choose, the king is going to have his day. It's going to go how he has determined you know, in the book of Hebrews, there's uh, chapter 11. Sometimes it's called the roll call of faith. Um, it just, it talks about the faith of all of these Old Testament saints. But what's interesting in Hebrews 11, when it's talking about their faith, how, their faith is described by their actions. For instance, Abraham believed God and he, he left his father's house 
and followed God. So their faith was known by what they do, which James says, faith without works is dead. So I'm going to show you my faith by what I do. So faith and works, they go together, right? But in Hebrews 11, when it's talking about these Old Testament saints, how they believed God and they trusted God and they followed Him and they obeyed Him, it's, it's interesting. Part of the commentary on their lives is it says, but they didn't receive all of their reward. But it says they were looking for a city that was to come. So the commentary of these saints is, yes, they trusted God in their time, but they weren't living for their time. They were living for what was to come. And because, listen, this is so important, because they had the heavenly perspective, they were able to live for God now. It's so important to realize this world is not the end. This world is not your reward. This world is not your inheritance as a child of God. And if we will look beyond the things of this world to what God has promised, and we will want, we'll realize that I am headed towards the presence of God forever. That's my destiny. I have a treasure awaiting me that's far greater than I can comprehend. Now, there's going to be a day when God wipes every tear from my eye and every wrong is made right, and the glory of God will illuminate heaven to where there'll be no sun or moon or stars when I understand that that is where I'm headed. It helps me to live right now. Because I'm not scrambling to get my way now. I'm not scrambling to go, i got to get everything now. I've got to be satisfied in this world now or I'm going to miss out. I can go, no, my reward is coming. And whatever happens in this life, it can't take that from me. Do you see the confidence that gives when you have a heavenly perspective? So there's a question asked and there's a heavenly perspective given. But again, it relates to Revelation chapter 11. Look at the book of Revelation chapter 11 to see how these relate. The nations are raging, but again, they're going to be given as an inheritance to the one they're raging against, right? And in Revelation 11 verses 15 through 19, we see a glimpse of that. Revelation 11 verse 15. This is a part of the, a uh, little bit of an interlude here in the judgments. And it says, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become what? The kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. What did Psalm 2 say? I'm going to give you the nations as your inheritance. What did it just say right here? Uh, the kingdoms have become his. And he's going to rule them forever. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you've taken your great power and reigned, saying you've established your rule. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come in the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, that those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in the temple. There were lightnings, noises, thunderings, and earthquake, and great hail. You see, the picture is given is that the king is going to have his day. And the very nations that rage right now, one day they will come and they will serve him. And they will answer to him. But again, how does that help us live now? That's where we need to end this morning. Let's look at Psalm 2, verses 10 through 12. 
What does it do? How does it help us to live now? I mean, one thing that I hope you're getting a little bit of confidence in is to understand that the craziness that you can look around and see going on in this world, it may be happening in a new way, but the root issue is the same. It's always been the same. It's rebellion against God. It's a desire to throw off His rule in our lives. And it looks different ways at different times, but it's the same problem. And that problem is going to continue until Jesus returns and says, enough. So again, how do we live in the midst of it? We know that we have the promise of Jeremiah 31. We know that His Spirit can transform us. But again, how do we respond to the world around us? Look at verse 10 of Psalm 2. Now therefore, be wise, O kings. So this is the instruction given to us in light of the first nine verses. Now therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. So this is our instruction for living now. This is the third part. Serve the Lord with fear. Here's the content of it. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. What a great promise at the end of verse 12. Now let's, let's look back over this again for just a minute. What's he saying? Be wise. Listen up. If you understand the first nine verses, then here's what it means to your life. Verse 10 is saying, be instructed in this. And the instruction of verse 11 is the first thing. Serve the Lord with fear and revere, uh, rejoice with trembling. And I think really another way to say this is to be humble before God. To instead of raging against him, to recognize him as God and to humble ourselves before him. Now you may say, well, I, I get that. That's really like... A base concept. I think that we get it a lot of times up here, but it doesn't make it down here. And I think that the way we respond to difficulties or things not going on in our life actually betray how much of a confidence we really have in God. And if I realize that He's really in control, my job is to humble myself before Him, it doesn't mean that the difficulties of life necessarily become easy. You still mourn, you still weep, you still have hardships. But there is a quiet, calm confidence I can have that my God is in control, that He is good, and my job is to trust Him in this. And so He's saying, look, I think first of all, recognize He's God and serve Him. Humble yourself before Him and serve Him. And then kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. It almost makes it sound like Jesus is fickle or something. Like he's emotional and we have to appease him. That's not what he's saying. He's saying recognize he's God. I mean in an instant he could destroy everything. He's powerful. And give him the honor that is due him. And so the first thing in the perspective for today is to humble ourselves before him. Look, you're not going to regret taking the humble path. You will regret the path of pride. You will regret asserting yourself. You will regret. You will regret claiming you've got it all figured out and everybody else needs to get in line. You're not going to regret humility. But the second thing is to honor him, to give him the honor that is due his name. And man, I think we live in a world that could very well be described as just 
intensely narcissistic. You know what that means? That just means self-centered. It is all about me, myself, and I. I mean, all you got to do is spend five minutes on social media, and everybody wants to show how they're living their best life, and their best life is better than yours. I can't stand it. What about being humble and being excited for somebody else that's having a great day? What about being a servant to others? I think Jesus talked about stuff like that, right? And so God has called us to humble ourselves, to give honor to him, to serve him. This is not a new thing. This is how it's always been. And so we have to ask ourselves, am I going to do what God says because God said it and trust him for the results, or am I going to allow the world to pull me in to its way of doing things? Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. And then look at the end. Blessed are all those who trust in him. What a great promise. And that's the thing. In the Christian life, in your life right now, are you living with the end game in mind? You see, I'm not living for this world. I'm living to please my master in this world, knowing that one day I get to go home and be with him. And because I know that my world, this world is not my home, I don't hold on to it very tightly. I enjoy the blessings that God gives me. I want to see my family blessed. I have things that are priorities. But I don't hold on to it too tightly because this isn't where I'm staying. I'm heading home one day. And the promise of God is blessed are all those who put their trust in him. And that's where I want to close today. You know, a toddler doesn't know what they don't know. So when they're kicking and screaming and they're being foolish, maybe sometimes they realize they are, but a lot of times they're just doing what a toddler does. That's that parent's job to correct and to guide and to nurture and encourage and do what's appropriate in the moment. So it is with God. God knows what is appropriate in our lives in the moment. He knows exactly what we need, when we need it, and how we need it. And so the question I want to close with this morning is, have you settled the matter of the goodness of God in your life? Have you settled the matter of the goodness of God? What do I mean by that? Well, when I say that God is good, I don't mean like good, better, best. I mean that he is good in the sense of his righteousness, his holiness. What he does is right and just and good. All right? Do you have the goodness of God settled in your heart? There are two ways to live. One way is to have the goodness of God settled in my heart, to realize that all that God does is good because God is good, therefore I can trust him, I can follow him, and I realize my job is to simply obey him and leave the results up to him. That's one way to live. That's the biblical way to live. That's what he's called us to do. Another way to live is this. I'm not sure about the goodness of God. Maybe you've grown up in a way where maybe you haven't been in church at all. You haven't been taught anything about God. Maybe you had an abusive situation you came out of. You're having trouble trusting this God who's supposed to be a father. Maybe you've had some traumatic event, and, and it's filtering the way that you look at life. And what you're doing is you are allowing the circumstances of your life to determine if, good, if God is good or not on that given day. 
And so there's two ways to live, either to have the matter settled, God is good, therefore, whatever happens, I'm going to be okay, or this is what life is doing to me, God must not be good. Or my life's gone okay today, so maybe God's not as mad with me today. Maybe God is good. Do you see the difference between the two? One way of living is a way where you're standing on a rock that no matter what the storms are, you'll stand. The other way of living is you are just constantly subjected to the circumstances of your life and you will be all over the map based on what other people do to you, how your emotions are, or whatever else comes into your life on that given day. And so as I bring this sermon to a, a close this morning, I want you to to just look at this last passage in, in Revelation chapter 6. Again, relating this. Because God's going to have his day. Revelation 6, verses 12 through 17, and then we're done. Uh, there's a passage here about God's judgment that's coming. And it's serious. Verse 12, I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and the rocks and the mountains, and said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him who sits on the sits on the throne and, and from the wrath of the Lamb, for great is his wrath to come, and who is able to stand? Now again, at the end of Psalm, it said, you know, kiss the sun lest he be angry. Who can endure his wrath? Here is his wrath pictured. So how does that relate to what I just talked about, the goodness of God? Here's how it relates to close. God's wrath is coming on the world because of sin. There is just a clock ticking down, and God the Father knows when that time is going to be up. And when it is up, the wrath of God is going to be poured out because of sin. But here's the goodness of God. Because God does not want you to be the object of his wrath, he has sent his son in your place. And if you ever doubt the goodness of God, you look to the cross. And you realize, I am the object of God's wrath, but the Son has taken my place. I am guilty of all of my sins, but the Son has died for my sins. I am guilty of the wrath of God, but God in his goodness have provided a substitute. And through Jesus, I am forgiven. I am unashamed. I am a child of God. I am blessed, and I am changed from within so that I can, by the power of his Spirit, live a life that is pleasing to my good, good Father. So if you ever doubt the goodness of God, you look to the cross and you realize the wrath has been satisfied. The Son has taken my place. Would you please stand with me? If you're here today and you've never put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is our invitation to you. To realize that God is good and that in his goodness he knows your sin and he's dealt with it through the cross. And so his call to you is to turn from that believing in Jesus and be saved. Quit trying. Quit trying to do it on your own and provide what he, receive what he has provided. 
But also maybe some of you are here today and you just realize, man, I, <laughs> I've just not been living a life that's pleasing to God and I know it. Guess what? He's the heart changer. Will you come to him and say, God, will you do in my heart what only you can do? There's hope in him. If you live and breathe and you're alive right now in this moment, you have hope in Jesus. Turn to him right now. He's there for you right now. As long as you have breath, there is hope if you will turn to Jesus. Maybe some of you are in family situations and your family is just broken and you don't know where to go and you don't know what decisions to make. You don't know what to do. You know, the worst thing we can do when we're not sure what to do is act like we all have it figured out. God's looking for a humble heart. If you're to a point in your life where you're just completely at the end of your rope and you don't know where to turn, that's the best place to be. Come to God in that brokenness and he will meet you there. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing a song of response, responding to God's word. But especially if you're here today and you've never put your faith in Christ, will you come and let me talk to you about that? Maybe we could kneel right here and you tell God what's in your heart. You put your faith in Christ and know the goodness of God before you leave today. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing a song of response. I'll be down front waiting for you. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you that you are good, that you love us, that you've taken our place for our sin, and you've risen from the grave, and you've given us a promise that if we will turn and believe in you, you will save us. So God, help us to take you at your word. And also forgive us, Lord, for how we doubt your goodness to us. Whatever work that we need done in our hearts today, you know it, and we ask you to do it. May we, as we leave this place, know that we've been faithful, faithful to obey whatever it is that you lead us to do in these moments. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.